sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the Federal Reserve uh, engaging in yet another interest rate hike. Also going to be touching on the most recent protests inside Haiti and much, much more. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. In the wake of the announcement by Russian President Vladimir Putin that a partial mobilization of the country's military reservists would be implemented, corporate media outlets here in the U.S. have responded with a frenzy of doomsaying, having a field day excoriating Putin and practically salivating at what they are projecting as the inevitable downfall of Russia. But they're really not telling you the whole story about any of it. CNN and Forbes say that Putin can call up all the troops he wants, but Russia can't train or support them, alleging that Russia has no way of getting the new troops training and weapons needed to fight in Ukraine anytime soon. Politico and other U.S. media outlets played up the flights leaving Moscow after Putin announced the mobilization. CNBC and plenty of other outlets gleefully reported on the 1,300 Russians arrested in in protests against the partial mobilization after its announcement. Several media outlets ran stories about Putin's nuclear threat in his speech. Now, I guess it would make sense that the military advisors and experts in the U.S. would say that Russia doesn't have the modern weaponry and training capabilities that Ukraine has, since what they're not telling you is that Ukraine is being propped up by the latest death-dealing machinery the U.S. and its allies can throw at them, and that NATO basically is the chief training officer, if you will, of those fascist forces in Ukraine. I said what I said, and I meant it. But does this mean that Russia doesn't have the capability to respond and defend not only the ethnic Russian-speaking people in the contested regions of Luhansk, Donetsk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia, but of Russia itself? I think rather than telegraphing doom for Russia, the U.S. and NATO should be careful not to count their chickens before they hatch, because despite what their experts believe, I don't think this is going to turn out the way they want it to. And it's wild that U.S. media outlets are making such an enormous deal about people leaving Russia after the announcement since the very same outlets were absolutely silent about Volodymyr Zelensky's regime denying Ukrainian men between the ages of 18 and 60 the ability to leave not only Ukraine, but keeping them from freely moving about the country at all so they could all be conscripted to fight in the Ukrainian army. And of course, one would expect protests against any escalation of war. So the protests in Russia against the mobilization, they're not a surprise. Although the U.S. media treated it as a watershed moment that signals the end for Putin and his support inside his country. However, what they don't tell you is that the 1,300 people detained were across 38 cities in Russia, hardly the massive groundswell of opposition that the U.S. is making it out to be. Now, of course, I have to point out here that nobody should be arrested for protesting. But the U.S. media can't make an issue about that because there's a whole new raft of anti-protest laws that have gone into effect in this country. 
So the media has to play up this alleged grassroots opposition to Putin. And while the anti-war protest makes sense, I don't buy that Russians are going to turn on Putin at this point especially since friend of the show, Mark Sloboda, noted that the ethnic Russian people in the eastern regions of Ukraine have actually been angry at Putin for eight years for not responding to the ethnic cleansing campaign the Kiev army carried out in that region since 2014. You're not going to hear that from U.S. media either. And about this nuclear threat that Putin allegedly made, here's what he actually said. Quote, nuclear blackmail has been used. We are talking not only about the shelling of the Zaporizhia nuclear plant encouraged by the West, which threatens to cause a nuclear catastrophe, but also about statements from senior representatives of NATO countries about the possibility and permissibility of using weapons of mass destruction against Russia, nuclear weapons. I would like to remind those who make such statements about Russia that our country also possesses various means of destruction, and in some cases they are more modern than those of NATO countries. When the territorial integrity of our country is threatened, we, of course, will use all means at our disposal to protect Russia and our people. This is not a bluff, he said, and those who try to blackmail us with nuclear weapons should know that the weather vane can turn and point towards them. So the question, at least for me, is who threatened whom here? Ukraine did try to bomb the Zaporizhia nuclear plant that Russian forces defended, but you didn't hear it that way in the U.S. media. They're also not telling you that, yes, some NATO officials have openly talked about using nukes against Russia. And of course, they're not telling you that Ukraine is being prodded by NATO to target sites inside Russia and that the goal is for Ukraine and NATO forces to breach that country's border militarily. At the end of the day, as much as I'm not an advocate for war, nor a, a defender of Vladimir Putin. The truth is that Russia has been defending itself against U.S., EU, NATO aggression and does have a right to defend itself against the immediate threat to its sovereignty that the U.S., EU and NATO backed actions in Ukraine have created. But of course, you'll never hear that part of the story in U.S. corporate media because telling the whole truth changes the very character of this war. And ironically, despite the desperate attempts by the U.S. media to prop up the legitimacy of U.S. military and monetary support for Ukraine, confidence in the U.S. military itself is at an all-time low in this country, with a recruiting environment the worst it has been since the end of the Vietnam War. The Washington Post reports... Testimony before the Senate Armed Services Committee revealed that some of the military services will just barely meet their recruitment goals as the fiscal year ends later this month. The Army, the armed forces' largest branch, will miss its target by 30,000 soldiers, with other branches expecting similar recruiting shortfalls. Despite this government's best Efforts. It is seemingly losing its ability to convince young people that killing people around the world for free health care and education is worth it. And I think the dishonest messaging on the war in Ukraine will also ultimately fail because I don't think it's the downfall of Russia that will come out of all of this, regardless of what the scribes for the U.S. empire try to tell you. Follow Luke Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. 
Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By the Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting a political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on, as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Dr. Jack Rasmus, an economist, radio show host, and the author of The Scourge of Neoliberalism. Dr. Rasmus, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Absolutely. And Dr. Rasmus, the Federal Reserve has approved its third consecutive interest rate hike of 0.75 percentage points and uh, may be signaling uh, uh, with additional increases as well. And uh, officials at the Fed have voted unanimously to uh, lift the rate to a range between 3 percent and 3.25 percent, which a level that has not been seen at least since early 2008. And uh, uh, Chairman Jerome Powell uh, recently said at a news conference following this decision, quote, we have to get inflation behind us. I wish there were a painless way to do that. There isn't. Now, we've been following the whole inflation issue uh, uh, closely here on the show, of course, Dr. Rasmus, talking uh, about it with you um, a good bit. And I'm just wondering, you know, what, what do you think this third hike really means about the reality of uh, both inflation and the economic situation in general in the United States? And, you know, do you see this uh, as a viable means of actually alleviating uh, the inflation issue? Well, you know, raising interest rates uh, is really, really targets the demand side of inflation, uh, not the supply side. And, um, you know, he, uh, Powell, actually uh, admits uh, that uh, they can't do anything about uh, supply-side-driven uh, prices. Um, you know, the global supply chains, in many cases, still haven't uh, totally healed. Uh, then you got supply issues as a result of uh, U.S. sanctions uh, on Russia, driving up the, the cost and price of uh, crude oil and uh, gas and uh, other industrial commodities and even some agricultural commodities. So, uh, the Fed can't do any, no central bank can do anything about supply side. Uh, and then we got the phenomenon of uh, uh, corporations with monopolistic power uh, just price gouging the hell out of everyone because they can, because they're hiding behind the um, other causes of inflation and claiming that's why they're raising their prices. But it's just price gouging. Uh, you know, a good example are. are um, you know, the uh, uh, chicken producers, you know, chicken prices up almost 20 percent here last month. Uh, bread and cereal producers uh, in the U.S., you know, these are industries where you have uh, three or four um, companies that control 80 percent or more of the market, and they're just jacking up their prices because they can. There's a lot of that going on, even in Congress is holding hearings on it, uh, not doing much, but just holding hearings. Um, so you got three forces driving inflation, two of them. Uh, the global supply chains and sanctions and, uh, you know, corporate price gouging, the Fed can do nothing about. And uh, roughly, you know, the 9, 10% CPI increases, I say roughly, uh, one third is uh, demand opening of the economy since the spring after COVID here, um, driving up uh, prices, demand driven. Uh, and the other two uh, 
our uh, supply side. And Fed can't do anything about that. So that when the Fed says, uh, oh, we're going to take, uh, you know, drastic means, and they are, they're raising rates very fast and very high, uh, that, uh, you know, we're going to get prices down to 2%. <laughs> uh, they're going to have to raise prices a lot more to get it down to 2%. And it's going to take uh, at least a year or more to get anywhere near 2%. And I predict they won't get to 2%. Uh, I predict uh, even with the recession deepening, recession's here, but it's going to deepen now. Even with that, uh, the prices will maybe get down to 3 4 4.5% at best here a year from now. Uh, so, you know, the Fed uh, is the only game in town. And the Fed's action is really designed to take it out on the backs of consumers and households and uh, create unemployment and create loss of uh, disposable income and therefore uh, cut back in spending uh, and uh, bring demand side inflation down. Uh, and, and of course, this is this isn't new. The Fed has done this before. Back under Reagan, uh, it did exactly this. It raised interest rates to 15 percent uh, and uh, brought the economy to a halt, particularly manufacturing and construction and housing. Uh, and it did bring down inflation as a result of that. But you know, even then, the, a lot of the inflation, late 70s, early 80s, was supply side driven. Global oil prices once again were the real culprit. Uh, so we got a repeat going on here. Uh, and as I've been, one final comment, as I've been predicting, uh, the Fed will never be able to raise rates above 5%, you know, the policy benchmark federal funds rate, um, because the, the, the economy will be in, uh, you know, protracted significant recession by then, and it'll have to reverse. Uh, because the economy, global U.S. today, is different than it was under Reagan. Uh, and uh, they, they just can't raise rates. So they'll never get it down to 2%. There's going to be a deeper recession here, no doubt. Uh, interest rates uh, always have a six six month plus lag, and we're beginning now uh, to see that in the fourth quarter. Um, but uh, it's desperation on the part of the Fed. Uh, and it's not going to work the way the Fed thinks it's going to work, but we will have a deeper recession. Yeah, and there's another aspect of this that I think um, perhaps gets glossed over, Dr. Rasmus, and that's the fact that inflation in the United States and these rate hikes from uh, the Federal Reserve, those impacts don't just stay within the borders of the U.S. I mean, there are global implications from this. I mean, here recently, we've seen a number of central banks around the world also raise their interest rates in the wake of the U.S. Uh, doing the same. And so I, I was hoping you could explain, you know, just why that is and what is the connection between uh, what's happening in the U.S. economy and some of these other economies uh, around the world. Yeah, that, that's a good point here. Well, you got to understand that the Federal Reserve is the central bank of central banks, and whatever it does, it forces other central banks around the world uh, to follow suit, to respond to it. So, you know, the Fed is kind of one of these institutional linchpins of the American uh, economic empire, along with the dollar and the IMF and the World Bank and the SWIFT international monetary system. Uh, so, uh, when the Fed raises rates, what happens? The mechanism of what happens is when when rates go up, the value of the U.S. dollar goes up. And when the dollar is the global reserve and trading currency, when the dollar goes up, all these other currencies in the world 
that are sort of uh, linked to the dollar, pegged to it, those other currencies go down. They contract, they fall. And currencies are falling everywhere in the world. Uh, the euro and the pound are down almost 20% and all the other currencies, uh, some of them even more, some of them a little less, but they're all uh, in plummeting around the world. Now, when those currencies fall, around the world, uh, they can buy fewer dollars, uh, and it means inflation rises from import. Imports inflation rises in all those those countries. And that, that means that they got to use more of their currency, Argentine pesos or whatever, to buy imported goods, because a lot of imported goods are only bought and sold in dollars, oil, commodities, even some some other, uh, you know, medical equipment and so forth, it's all bought in dollars. Uh, so if they got to spend more dollars to buy the necessities, then that means inflation rises in their countries from imports, because most countries are more dependent on imports than the United States. Um, so we are exporting inflation. Uh, to these other countries, and the other countries have to respond. How do they respond? Well, they raise their interest rates, their domestic interest rates, in an attempt to protect their currencies from collapsing. Look, look what's happening in Europe right now. The the euro has uh, contracted about twenty percent, and the uh, economies are. Entering a recession in Europe is going to get much worse in the winter. Why are they raising interest rates to slow their economy? Well, they're not doing it for that reason. They're not even doing it for uh, reasons of uh, demand-driven inflation, because it's even more supply-driven over there with the sanctions. What they're doing is trying to protect their currency from free-falling. Uh, and uh, that's the connection there. U.S. rates go up. Fed raises rates. U.S. dollar goes up. Other currencies go down, and therefore their central banks try to raise rates to slow that whole process. Yeah, and you know, a moment ago, uh, Doctor Rasmus, you you noted, um, I believe, the raise in prices for things like uh, gas and food. And, and uh, to be sure, I mean, there's a recent uh, uh, CPI report, a consumer price index that showed that food prices are up 13.5 percent and gasoline up 25.8 percent. But yet and still, Powell is telling Congress, uh, the banking committee, that the rate hikes can't really do anything about gas or food. But I mean, to me, that sort of begs the question, then, why is the Fed raising the rates? I mean, I don't know. I just feel like there's just, a, to say the very least, a kind of muddled logic that is emanating from a, a Powell in the Federal Reserve. And I, I mean, what is really uh, the thinking here? I mean, what is the reasoning behind these sorts of things that are, you know, being visited uh, uh, mostly upon, uh, uh, you know, the poor working class elements of this country? You know what I mean? Yeah, well, it's what I was uh, saying initially, and that is Powell knows that rising food and gas prices are supply-side or corporate price gouging driven. He knows that. He admitted that. He said outright, we can't do anything about rising food and gas prices. And then you say, well, why the hell is he raising interest rates then? Well, because they're going to take it out on the back of other products and services uh, that will respond to 
collapsing demand, you know, like the cost of buying cars, the cost of buying houses, and uh, bring down inflation that's demand-driven in those other non-supply-driven uh, items and commodities. Uh, so that's what's going on, uh, which shows you the desperation of uh, the monetary policy and the Fed here. Uh, he knows. He knows what I'm telling you. He knows that um, raising interest rates, you know, isn't going to have anything to do with price increases by supply causes, uh, but he's going to really whack those items that will respond to demand contraction as a result of the rising interest rates. Uh, but that's why I say uh, the Fed has limited influence over contracting inflation. It only can contract uh, demand-driven inflation, uh, but it's really got to drive those prices way down uh, in order to get some response in the general price level. And we're seeing that happen now. I mean, uh, home prices are plummeting everywhere in the U.S. and globally, as a matter of fact. But... Um, you know, home prices uh, would take take the uh, uh, food prices, right? You said 13.5% in the last uh, uh, price uh, report from the U.S. government. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but uh, you look into that number, dig a little deeper, and, and what do you see? Uh, well, you got chicken prices, 17%. You know, you've got uh, butter prices, 25%. Uh, you got bread uh, 17% eggs, 40% increases going on, right? Well, eggs, well, you got about three three chicken producers in this country, chicken, you know, 17%, and they are price gouging us. They are raising rates, not because people are eating so much more chicken or, you know, eating so much more butter all of a sudden. No, they're raising it because they can, because they have monopolistic power. But, you know, the media uh, is not uh, really addressing this. Uh, you know, they don't want to say anything about corporate monopolistic price behavior going on. Uh, you know, some in Congress know it, and they got these hearings going on, but you don't hear much about that in the media, do you? Because they don't want to really publish the fact that, uh, well, corporations might be responsible for this too, and maybe we need some price controls on these guys. They don't want to go there. Yeah. And I mean, you know, uh, I'm from Florida, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with, with, with price gouging. It's something that happened at all the gas stations every uh, hurricane season. And, but what you're discussing is uh, something that does happen on a national scale that literally impacts millions of people. And it really is corporate price gouging. It isn't framed as that way or described quite that way within the media, as you're pointing out, Dr. Rasmus. But I mean, when you get down the brass tacks. It's just clear that that's what it is. And so it feels then that there's always a kind of protection of corporations, but in reality, I feel like it's more of a protection of capital that not only takes place within the mainstream media, but I mean also uh, up into and including, you know, the uh, Federal Reserve itself, which is not surprising considering, of course, that in the U.S. we are very much under a, a capitalist system that we're told is the greatest, most humane and democratic system there ever was. But when in fact it's the root of a lot of issues, but never gets acknowledged 
used as the core issue. You know what I mean? And so it seems to me at base then, doctor, that, I mean, the, the economic system itself is really what's driving not only the economic issues, but the political, the social issues. I mean, I, I see it as sort of all intertwined. And uh, the, the real contradictions of this capitalist system have, I think, been showing their faces, if you will, in a very serious way. I mean, for some time, but I think it's been intensified by the conditions of the pandemic. And so I feel like that capitalism is the word that is sort of, it's almost like a specter haunting so much of what's happening inside the U.S. But, you know, those in power and those who, you know, are in front of us on the 24-7 news cycle dare not mention its name. You know what I mean? But I I do think it's important to sort of highlight that the system itself uh, really does seem to be the core contradiction here. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, you know, you got to understand that fiscal and monetary policy are really geared towards making sure uh, investors and corporations uh, continue to increase their wealth. You know, it's a little bit of a of a myth here that, oh, uh, the Federal Reserve is about balancing and stabilizing the economy. Uh, well, you know, the Fed uh, gave big banks in 2020 $5 trillion, $5 trillion of free money, right? And a lot of that went into the stock market. They loaned it other investors, went into the stock market, caused this bubble in the stock market going on. The banks didn't need it. You know, in 2008-9, they were in trouble and they needed bailout, and the Fed gave them $4 trillion then. And now it gave them $5 trillion and they didn't even need it. Well, what does that tell you? That tells you that the Federal Reserve monetary policy is a a big uh, um, subsidization uh, machine of capital particularly finance capital in this in this country. Uh, look at fiscal policy. How much has uh, Congress cut corporate investor taxes since George Bush? Another $15 trillion, $15 trillion in tax cuts for the wealthy, 1%, you know, for corporations and, uh, you know, for investors. Corporations had super profits here since the crash of 2009. What have they done with those super profits? They redistributed to their shareholders $13 trillion in stock buybacks and dividend payouts. So what you got are these massive numbers of uh, of money capital being funneled into investors and corporations and the rich coming from all directions, from tax cuts, you know, from uh, – uh, Federal Reserve uh, throwing free money at them. And of course, let's add the $8 trillion uh, uh, to the war industries because of all these wars that have occurred since Bush. Massive trillions, tens of trillions of dollars flowing into their their pockets here. And the rest of us, you know, we, we get, uh, you know, a little bit of crime here and there, a little bit more unemployment insurance when you got a crisis, you know. They give you some child care for six months and then they take it away. Uh, they give you a little dabble of uh, rent assistance, they take that away. Once in a while, in a deep crisis, they throw some checks at you, right? Uh, That's for the rest of us. But this ongoing for decades now in the 21st century, massive subsidization by fiscal and monetary policy going on in this country. Yeah, uh, it's a capitalist country. 
Yeah, without question, without question. And, you know, in our last uh, couple of minutes, doctor, um, I'm just sort of wondering what you think this all means for the sort of future of the economy in uh, uh, the U.S. and kind of how you see it unfolding. Yeah, well, I, as I said, I uh, we are in recession. I predicted a recession last year. We've been in a recession for the first half of th- this year. GDP has been contracting this uh, third quarter. It's flat at best. Uh, and now you got the uh, interest rate hikes is going to get deeper. So we are in a recession. Uh, it's going to continue. We don't know how deep and how long. It depends on if you have a financial uh, uh, crash at some point. Uh, it's global, the recession. It's synchronized across all countries here virtually, even China, uh, slowing dramatically. Um, So recession is here. And as I said, inflation is not going away, especially since, you know, these sanctions and wars going on, uh, uh, you know, in in Ukraine, in the U.S. and uh, G7, NATO are not backing down on all this, uh, and neither is Putin. Uh, So this is going to continue. Inflation you know, may dampen some. It's going to continue. Uh, recession is going to re- continue. Currencies uh, are, are very unstable. You know, no one knows what that's going to lead to. Income is is contracting in real terms for you know the working and middle class in this country. Uh, it's not a pretty picture, and it's not going away soon. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Rasmus, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the latest with ongoing protests inside Haiti. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dr. Jamima Pierre, Haiti America's coordinator for the Black Alliance for Peace. Dr. Pierre, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Absolutely. And we're happy to have you, Dr. Pierre. And the government of Haiti, under the leadership of Dr. Ariel Henry, the prime minister, is reportedly planning to uh, raise fuel prices in the country. And of course, this is happening amidst um, uh, an already uh, pretty dire uh, economic and social and political situation already raging inside Haiti. And there have already been uh, uh, calls in recent weeks for the resignation of uh, Dr. Ariel Henry as the head of state for Haiti. And it seems that uh, there's been a new round of protests that have broken out as a result of this reported fuel hike. And specifically, uh, the government has said, I believe last week, that it was going to end $400 million in subsidies for kerosene, gasoline, and diesel, which would double the price for consumers. And so, doctor, you know, what do you make of this uh, latest round of protests? How does this fuel situation um, factor into conditions inside Haiti? And how do you see it all as connected to uh, uh, the ongoing crisis that's been happening there? Right. Well, the first thing I want to say is the crisis in Haiti is a crisis of imperialism. It is a crisis of the Western elite, the core group, the IMF, the World Bank. 
um, hey, uh, U.S., Canada, um, really from 2004, once they um, removed the Hades, when they removed Hades president, have been ruling the country and take, turning it into really a colony of slaves. And so the, the gas price rise that's happening right now, what people are protesting now, and I have to say, people have been protesting against um, U.S. imperialism and the U.N. imperialism for a long time. Um, the gas price hikes um, now is because uh, they're trying to basically remove subsidies that the Haitian government has always had a, has had on gas prices for a long time. And so y you're right. It's, it's basically gasoline prices go from 250 goods, which is about $2 per gallon, to 550 goods. Uh, that's $4.80. Mind you, the Haitian minimum wage um, per day is 260 goods. So basically, one gallon of gas would be twice as much as a person makes in one day. And the reason for this, 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 um, the rise in price is that the IMF is, is forcing austerity measures on Haiti, right? So the IMF is saying basically that too much of the money of the U.S. Haitian, um, the Haitian government money um, um, goes towards subsidizing fuel and basically leaving little money for other for other things. And then we have to ask ourselves, why is it that the IMF is behind this austerity measures when truly, truly all of Haiti's funding comes from the West, comes from the U.S. government? And also we have to remember, we have to ask ourselves what, you know, how it is that Haiti is um, being forced to do this by an unelected government. Henri is not elected. He was imposed um, by, on the people by the core group and the U.S. government. And he's deeply unpopular. And so we have to really think about all of that um, in terms of thinking about Haiti and that these protests are when we have uh, inflation spiraling all over the world. We have it here in the U.S. And, you know, Europe is going through its own problems because of the sanctions that impose on Russia. And they're subsidizing their people, giving them money, capping prices. But Haiti has to basically bear the brunt of global inflation and bear the brunt of Western-imposed austerity. And, and so that's what we need to start. We need to start with the fact that the Westerners run Haiti and they're basically squeezing the people over and over again. And they need to be careful because, you know, hopefully this will turn into a revolutionary movement that ousts them all. Yeah, and on that note, Doctor, um, what do we know about, uh, and this is always a question for me, really, I mean, during any protest movement, but particularly with um, a country with a unique situation in history like Haiti, in terms of the different elements that uh, uh, we're seeing that are organizing these uh, different things, different organizations, different political elements. I mean, of course, within Haiti, there is the uh, other issue of armed groups and uh, groups that engage in kidnapping and things like this. And so when we see uh, the people in the streets there in Haiti, I mean, do we do we know what elements of society they're emerging from, what organizations they may represent? I don't know if there's like a leading element there, but but how are you seeing that aspect of it? Well, I think there are all kinds of different groups out in the streets. And and I, I want to say before I talk about the, the violence of people in the street in Haiti is there's a deep anti-Black racism in the representation of violence and representation of protests in Haiti that really makes it seem like Haitians are basically, Haiti's, you know, anarchy, you know, things are falling apart. These Negroes are violent. And so if you have, if you have like two shootings in Port-au-Prince, you have, the, there's a collusion with the media and these leaders basically saying chaos in Haiti. 
and you know, and Port au Prince does not represent the rest of the country. But it's it, it you know, even though we have mass murders and shootings in the U.S. every day, it's not represented in the way that we have the representations of of Haiti. So I think that that we need to really think about that. I think there are a lot of different groups going uh, happening. I think the elite have always armed. Um, young men with no jobs, you know, these guns that are coming in are not being made in Haiti. They're being brought in by some of the elite groups. And I think the U.S. government is implicated, including their so-called, you know, the DA and the war on drugs. I think they're implicated in distributing guns in, in, in the country. I think there are real radical movements like the Molagaf movement, which is a, a, a socialist organization that's asking for the end of all imperialism, the end of capitalism. You have groups in the north you know, that are behind some, you know, politicians who are taking advantage of 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 the disruptions in Haiti. So it is a it's a very, very group of people, but they're all protesting some of the similar things that there's there's violence, there's um there's imperial rule of Haiti, there's foreign control, there's an unelected government, but also people are starving, then they they cannot work. Um they schools have been closed and they cannot eat. And I think it's a combination of groups fighting a combination of things that all have their basis in Western imperialism in Haiti. So that I think that's what's happening. Yeah, and you make an important point, Doctor, when you highlight the the anti-black racism that's inherent in the portrayal of Haiti, not just today in, in, in 2022, but I mean, all throughout its history. And like you say, I mean, you know, countries like Haiti are portrayed as uh, a jungle. And I use that word very uh, intentionally right. in the sense that they're portrayed and seen as these dark, dangerous, mysterious places full of uh, savages that cannot be trusted to govern themselves. And it's all just a very transparent way of, you know, whitewashing and covering up the crimes, exploitation and brutality and really the inhumanity of the colonial and imperial powers of the world and just the devastation that it wreaks on a country like Haiti. But certainly we see this with the other countries as well. And so, you know, to me, doctor, it's just a reminder about how, like with so many things, I mean, white supremacy is really weaponized to try to keep Haiti and so many other countries in this fundamentally uh, a colonial position, which to me seems directly connected to the severe material conditions that we've been seeing there for so long. No, you're absolutely right. And you know what we you know, one of the things that it's a it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. So you fly in the U.S., Canada, France, hatch out a plan to get rid of Haiti's elected, popularly elected government in 2004, which is a 200th anniversary of the Haitian Revolution. They do this. They remove Haiti. They put in a series of, of puppets. They destroy the Haitian government, the Haitian state. Um, and then they turn around and say, Haiti is a mess and we need to help them. In this conversation, we don't talk about the venal political he- elite, the Haitian oligarchy, um, and, uh, and the U.S. multinational corporations. So you have, for example, Gilbert Biggio, the Italian, the one billionaire in Haiti, who's the head of the industrial conglomerate, the GB Group, which presides a, a monopoly over for the Haitian steel market, right? And so, but he pays, you know, the average Haitian worker is paid $300 a month right, working for, for, for the steel company. And then you have textile and garment companies that are generating a lot of profits, but unlivable wage are being paid to, to, to Haiti. So we have the, 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 the economic destruction by this venal political elite and the oligarchy 
and the, the U.S. And, and other Western multinational corporations. You have the political rule of the core group of U.N. occupation that's been there where you have the, the U.N., the, the BINU, which is the acronym for the U.N. occupation, really controlling Haiti's politics. And then you have the Westerners who go then to the U.N. and make speeches about helping these poor savage Haitians, right? And so I, I think th there's a way that you create the you create the, the material conditions, you destroy everything, you know, and Haiti's economic, you know, um, uh, status has been destroyed over the years. If we, if we think about the way that, for example, uh, Clinton apologized for dumping U.S., you know, rice on Haiti and basically destroying the Haiti's um, 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 agricultural sector. And then we have to think about that. We think about how the U.S. pushed Haiti to get out of the petrochemical funds where Hugo Chavez of Venezuela really set up this plan to actually help Haiti develop by providing oil at no interest to Haiti so that they can use the money that they um, got from selling the oil for development projects. The U.S. government put in puppets that stole all the money and then forced the next public government to get out of the Petro-Caribe deal that Venezuela had with Haiti and other Caribbean nations. And so we don't get that part of the story. What we get is, you know, 10 murders in the streets of Port-au-Prince and Haiti is, 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 you know, in chaos. And for me, to me, that's a purposeful that's a purposeful move, and it's a purposeful collusion between the, the, the Western media and the Western political elite. Yeah, and you know that actually makes me want to touch on a broader question, Doctor, because you mentioned the Haitian oligarchy, and that's important because they, I feel like they rarely get talked about. They're definitely not as visible as other elements inside Haiti, and it's my impression, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that they're largely non-black, although certainly there are black people to be found um, within that class element. Now, of course, you know, obviously their blackness doesn't, um, you know, change their relationship to, to the exploitative sense in the masses of people. But even still, I was hoping you could say more about this uh, a Haitian oligarchy and how they factor into uh, the politics and conditions of the country while basically uh, seeming to be able to uh, enjoy a level of anonymity that certainly the people of the street uh, uh, aren't able to. Exactly. You know, like the king of the, the monarchy in England, they are parasites. These oligarchy are parasites and they are non-black. And, you know, the, the thing is, there's a long history of, uh, of, of race and class and color um, divisions in Haiti. And, and, you know, for a long time, right after independence, the Haitian was divided into two. You had the mulatto elite in the South and then the, 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 the dark skin group with some elite groups in the North. And, and, you know, there's always been that hatred of the, of the, the, the mulatto elite for the masses. But they also, the, the elite, you know, they're a tiny group that's over 200 years may, managed to maintain their, their race, <laughs> their light-skinned race um, 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 position, that their light-skinned, their, their racial position, and, and have managed to hold on to whatever wealth there, there is. And, when, and what happens because of global white supremacy and the way racism works, when there's a disaster like the 2010 uh, earthquake in Haiti, they benefited the most because they own the land and the factory. So a lot of these elite came up big time after 2010, where all this money was raised for Haiti. They're the ones that that money was poured into them because, you know, these Western, they're transnational elites. They have connections in the U.S. and they were able to get a lot of the contracts, right? So a lot of them who were like land rich and cash poor, 2010, they made a big come up. And that's, and, and, and those are the people that we don't talk about because how is it that you have a country that's 
you know, dark skin, 99% dark skin black people controlled by this white and light skin elite, which is the which is connected to the transnational um, West and um, white elite, um, transnational Western corporations and, and political um, uh, class. And that run Haiti and that really hate the masses. I mean, they hate the masses. They hate the blacks and they are racist towards the black. But we don't get it. And if we don't really talk about the details of that, we don't get to see them because we see Haiti as black. We have to show how these elites live. And I think I think the um, the New York Times did a story about the, the, the mulatto elite a long time ago. But we need to really hone in on that and see how that's linked, because. They're, the ultimate goal is for them to work together with the Western elite, the, 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 the white supremacist Western elite, to keep the black Haitians down and to use them as basically a captive labor force for their enrichment. Definitely. And, you know, there's another aspect of this I wanted to touch on, uh, Dr. Pierre, and that's the role of the Dominican Republic in their reports of Dominican nationals uh, collaborating allegedly with uh, some of the um, armed groups inside Haiti. And of course, I believe it was last week, uh, the president of the Dominican Republic, uh, Luis Abinader, I never know if I'm saying his name correctly, but he came here to D.C. to meet with U.S. government officials about what's been happening and also addressed uh, the permanent council of the OAS, the Organization of American States, where he said in part, quote, the crisis that overflows the borders of Haiti is a threat to the national security of the Dominican Republic. And reportedly, he's been really pushing for a new foreign military intervention uh, into Haiti and uh, even plans to build a $30 million border wall uh, along the uh, border with Haiti, which is about 244 miles. Now, of course, uh, centuries of history between the Dominican Republic and Haiti who share uh, uh, the island. And so I'm just wondering uh, how you see the role in uh, the government of the DR in this, uh, uh, doctor, and how you, you know, uh, see it sort of rippling through uh, the broader crisis here. Yeah. And, you know, for this, I, and I know your audience knows about uh, Gerald Horn. I'd love to uh, point them to the book Confronting Black Jacobins by Gerald Horn, which talks about this. You know, there's a long history of the Dominican Republic racism against Haiti. And we have to remember the 1937 Parsley Massacre, where they, you know, the, they sent the uh, military uh, uh, in to basically chop up the military, the Dominican military and regular Dominicans chopped up Haitians with machetes, uh, Haitians that were working there on their sugar plantations. And so, and you know, the, the relationship with Dominican Republic and Haiti is one that's interesting because as the Haitian revolution happened, Haiti basically took over the Dominican side of, 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 of the island, the Dominican Republic side of the island to actually prevent slavery from continuing. And what's interesting about that is you know, as the, as the revolution was going and they were being threatened by, you know, they have to fight the British, the Spanish, the French. And, you know, um, uh, uh, so they had to basically take over the entire island, get rid of slavery on the Dominican part of the island and, and basically control the island so that they would not be um, be invaded by these Western powers. And so what's interesting is that the Dominicans actually celebrate independence from Haiti, not from the Spanish, which which tells you everything you need to know, that the Dominican elite in terms of their anti-Blackness. But they've been very racist towards Haiti, even as the largest trading market. They made a they made they 
the Dominican businesses have made so much money since the earthquake off of Haitian labor and Haitian money. So they want to do that. They want a one-way border where they can come in and, and, and steal Haitian resources, which that's what they're doing, especially in the northern part of Haiti. But then they're working with Homeland Security to build a border wall, U.S. Homeland Security, to build a border wall in the Dominican Republic. At the same time, the Dominican elite has been key to the destabilization of Haiti and Haitian politics. Uh, if you will know, in 2004, the, the coup d'etat that happened was because, you know, the, the Dominican Republic and later U.S. Special Forces were training these paramilitary groups, and they were living in the Dominican Republic, Dominican Republic, and they attacked, the paramilitary group attacked Haiti from the Dominican Republic. So the Dominican Republic has everything to do with its long history of racism and anti-blackness associations, but also a long history of destabilizing Haiti. They have, they're part of this uh, Western elite, you know, this right-wing Western elite that hates Haitians, hates blackness, and they want, they will work with that. And the fact that they have the nerve to come to Haiti, to come to the U.S. and talk and think that they have a say in what's happening in Haiti tells you that they are that they are continuing this long legacy of, of their hatred of Haiti and Haitians. And so for me, you know, I think these people also need to, to be careful because I think Haitians, you know, have, can only take so much. And if we know the history of the Haitian revolution, it was around these kind. it was a, a confluence of events and protests and stuff that actually led to a revolutionary moment. And I, and I'm hoping we're, we're there right now because there's only so much the Haitian people can take. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Pierre, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be hearing from a political prisoner, Mumia Abu-Jamal, who recently published a commentary on PrisonRadio.org about the struggle for freedom in Palestine, the plight of journalist uh, Julian Assange, and other struggles happening around the world. I mean, I just think that this is uh, uh, relevant and noteworthy on a number of levels, discussing uh, several issues that I think are interconnected and definitely have resonance with other issues happening both inside and outside the U.S. and the West. And so we're going to give Mumia a a listen here and uh, get his insight, which is always piercing and very prescient about the state of things. Assange, Palestine, and other freedom struggles. Julian Assange, a journalist and publisher for the internet agency known as WikiLeaks, faces a frightening regime of U.S. torture if he's extradited to America on false espionage charges. Assange's WikiLeaks has only committed their jobs as journalists to unravel and expose 
government lies, government crimes, and government murders in their imperial persecution of unjust wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Assange committed no crime except perhaps that which is truly unpardonable, embarrassing the U.S. Imperial Army as it killed innocent, unarmed civilians in Iraq and elsewhere. WikiLeaks published tapes of American soldiers laughing and joking as they slaughtered Arabs. And guess who got charged with a crime? Julian Assange, who has been subjected to mind-bending tortures of solitary confinement, itself a violation of international human rights law. Julian is not a citizen of the U.S. He is not a spy. He is a brave and resourceful journalist who fought to reveal the truth. He should be free and not only applauded, but awarded. And now to Palestine. Recently, when writing about Palestine, I referenced the work of philosopher Achille Ndembe's 2019 book, Necropolitics. Professor Ndembe makes note of what he calls exits from democracy, or of those intentionally excluded from democratic consideration, those contemplated as outsiders. He writes of how the Palestinians in the lands of their birth are such an excluded people, and he compares this to the mid to late 20th century exclusions known to the world as apartheid in South Africa. Mbembe writes, permanent or random checkpoints, cement blocks, and mounds of earth designed to block roads, the control of air and marine space, of the import and export of all sorts of products, frequent military incursions, demolition of houses, the desecration of cemeteries, uprooting whole olive groves, obliterating and turning infrastructure to dust, high and medium altitude bombings, targeted assassinations, urban counterinsurgency techniques, the profiling of minds and bodies, constant harassment, the ever smaller subdivision of land, cellular and molecular violence, the generalization of the camp form. Every feasible means is put to work to impose a regime of separation whose functioning, paradoxically, depends on approximate intimacy with those who have been separated. Mbembe, page 44. He adds, such practices variously recall the reviled model of apartheid with its bantu stands, vast reservoirs of cheap labor, its white zones, its multiple jurisdictions, and wanton violence. However, the metaphor of apartheid does not fully account for the specific character of the Israeli separation project. First, this project rests on a rather singular, metaphysical, and existential base. The apocalyptic and catastrophist resources underwriting it 
are far more complex and derive from a longer historical horizon than those that made South African Calvinism possible. Second, with its high-tech character, the effects of the Israeli project on the Palestinian body are far more formidable than the relatively primitive operations undertaken by the apartheid regime in South Africa between 1948 and the early 1980s. This also goes for the miniaturization of violence, its cellularization and molecularization, as well as its various techniques of material and symbolic effacement. It is also evidenced in the procedures and techniques of demolition of almost everything, infrastructures, houses, roads, the countryside, and the dynamic of frenzied destruction, whose essence lies in transforming the lives of Palestinians into a heap of ruins or a pile of garbage destined for cleansing. In South Africa, the mounds of ruins never did reach such a scale. Professor Ndembe. Achille Ndembe, in the book Necropolitics, is quoted here. This should give us some insight into the regime of collective punishment enacted against Palestine, written by a brilliant African scholar. As for me, the struggle continues. Wherever you are, there's probably a group of young activists who organize on our benefit and behalf. We struggle on, for in the words of our belated sister, Tilo Niasha, freedom is a constant struggle. I love you all. With love, not fear. This is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Prison Radio. We'll be right back here on By Any Means Necessary. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, September 22nd, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call if by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary. Here in Washington, D.C., you can do that by calling us at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. 
click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure live on Rumble right now at rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Margaret Kimberly, editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report and author of the book Presidential Black America and the Presidents. Margaret, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's good to be back. Absolutely. And it's good to have you back, Margaret. And, you know, on the show, we've been following this issue about these uh, racist uh, Republican governors in Texas and Florida, namely Greg Abbott and uh, Ron DeSantis, who have been busing immigrants from their states up to sanctuary cities like Washington, D.C., where we are, and like New York City, where you're based, Margaret. And you recently published a piece on uh, Black Agenda Report entitled Asylum, Migration, and U.S. Foreign Policy, where you point out the core contradiction about the migration issue here in this country that is consistently left out of mainstream media coverage and analysis and certainly not discussed within the halls of power in the United States. And that, of course, is uh, how U.S. imperialism factors into uh, uh, the migration issue. And uh, I was hoping you could get more into that, uh, uh, Margaret, and how that factors into all of this. I mean, particularly as, you know, we see a lot of these migrants coming uh, mostly from Venezuela, which has been a bit of target of U.S. sanction and regime change for uh, uh, some years now. And so I was hoping you could break down sort of why that aspect of things are so important into understanding the immigration issue in general here in the U.S.? Well, it was, uh, uh, first of all, thanks for having me back. Uh, I found it interesting that uh, the people who had uh, been tricked into flying to Martha's Vineyard, and they were, um, uh, told that they were going to get jobs and they had housing for them, all of which was a lie. And um, I found it interesting that they were Venezuelans. And uh, it's important for your listeners to know that immigration policy is not some uh, uh, benign set of rules that uh, are the same for all countries. The U.S. punishes countries it doesn't like, like Venezuela, uh, the three countries in this hemisphere which are under U.S. sanctions, which destroy their economy, which uh, deprive people of food, medicine, infrastructure needs are Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Because the U.S. hates their governments, because their governments are socialist, they um, 
um, admit citizens of those countries as asylees. So uh, anyone else who enters with the claim of asylum is investigated, is very often they're deported. If you're Haitian, you're just deported. Uh, and this alleged right to seek asylum doesn't really exist unless you come from these countries that are targeted by the U.S. So in effect, in this hemisphere, people from those countries, those three countries, are put at the front of the line. And there are so they are, in fact, being encouraged to leave their nation. So let's suppose you you live in Nicaragua or Venezuela and you're struggling and in part because of U.S. sanctions and punishments on your country. Maybe you weren't thinking about leaving, but then you find out if you get to the border you're at the front of the line. Uh, your asylum claim is far more likely to be accepted. Uh, you may not be granted asylum right away, but you can temporarily enter the country, and you're entering the country legally. And uh, so I figured this is what had happened to uh, the people who were sent to Martha's Vineyard. And I think it's something that needs to be discussed. We need to talk about immigration uh, the unfairness of it, uh, the fact that um, uh, black people from all over the world are more likely to be deported, uh, that these rules change depending upon where you are from, and the hypocrisy of these Republican governors who always talk about how they hate socialism, but um, uh, and therefore support these policies that put people from a country like Venezuela at the front of the line, they just call them migrants. And the other thing that annoys me is that the corporate media don't bother to explain these things to people. They just say migrants. Well, that doesn't mean what much. It's anybody who comes to the country. And it doesn't tell you about um, uh, requests for asylum and, and, and so forth. So I thought it was important to, um, to try to break some of this down and uh, explain to uh, Black Agenda Report readers and others that um, asylum is an inherently corrupt uh, process, and uh, it depends on how the U.S. feels about the home nation. And if you, but if you're from Haiti, a country which is a mess and entirely because of the U.S., uh, nobody wants to hear about your uh, asylum claim. But if you're from a country under um, uh, U.S. sanctions and you're targeted then you are treated differently. And in addition to uh, the other issues um, regarding immigration, it's something that needs to be brought up. Yeah, especially since, you know, about 100,000 Ukrainians have arrived here since February 2022. And I don't recall anybody putting any of them on a flight anywhere, uh, uh, you know, in any uh, politician's hometown or near their official uh, residence at all. Nobody says anything about those 100,000 Ukrainians that have arrived here. So, I mean, clearly there is an obvious racial bias in this entire immigration uh, um, uh, asylum process. But there are also other, you know, serious and I think um, longstanding aspects of the misinformation about uh, the way so-called undocumented people are treated when they come to this country. And two of those issues, I think, are the, the issue of, of sanctuary cities, which conservatives are always railing against, which is why they sent, you know, some of the people to cities like New York City, which claims it's a sanctuary city in Washington, D.C., which makes the same claim. And the issue of, you know, uh, public benefits like uh, SNAP benefits, you know, 
you don't want to give public benefits to, you know, to these uh, undocumented people. What is the reality behind particularly the sanctuary cities claim that people don't understand that really is important in how how corrupt this immigration system really is, Margaret? Well, the term sanctuary city is bandied about a lot by conservatives. But uh, this is what it means. It means that the city, for in this case, uh, New York, where I am, uh, the city of New York will not assist in uh, deporting people because they are undocumented. It doesn't mean no one gets deported from New York. It means, for example, if someone was undocumented and was uh, taken to the hospital in an emergency, and it's one of those situations where you have to have ID and so forth. If if someone at the hospital suspected that the person was undocumented and they called um, uh, the police called NYPD, they're not supposed to assist in um, that person being arrested. They're not supposed to assist in calling um, ICE. That's what it means. All the federal rules are still in effect. People who are undocumented, undocumented can't sign up for Obamacare. Uh, in some very restrictive circumstances, can sign up for SNAP benefits. If, if, for example, they have kids born here who are citizens, then they can apply on behalf of their kids or if they've been trafficked or something like that. But for the most part, um, the, all the federal rules apply. And sanctuary city doesn't mean much of anything, uh, really. And the other thing is there are undocumented people all over the country. Um, uh, and they are, and, and sometimes they can be employed. There are people who, uh, employers who look the other way when they see what they think is a phony social security number, or people are just paid in cash. Um, and that happens in Texas. That happens in Florida. But this is a vote getting, um, issue for them. And it's not a surprise that this comes. Um, a couple of months before the midterm elections and Ron DeSantis, of course, running for president. But what it also means for a place like New York, New York does have, thankfully, a a, a shelter system and the city's under court order to provide shelter to anybody who shows up and asks for it. But um, the city is not expecting several thousand people to show up and ask for shelter. So there's, um, you know, talk of suing uh, the state of Texas. I, I, I believe they're acting too slowly. Frankly, I think there's some uh, things that could be done to stop this. You using people, being uh, so cruel, using people as uh, election year uh, props, lying to them, telling them they'll get something if they go to Martha's Vineyard. And why Martha's Vineyard? Well, because that's where Obama has a house. And it's supposed to be embarrassing to the Democrats or send people to Kamala Harris's house to the vice president's residence or something. And this is supposed to embarrass the Democrats who don't uh, secure the border, uh, we're told. But as we said, immigration, it's political. So Ukrainians get in 100,000 people this year. The refugee system, which actually is the best way uh, to gauge uh, people being uh, in need of uh, uh, protection was destroyed by Trump. Biden has ignored it, except Afghanistan, after Biden botched the withdrawal from Afghanistan, suddenly all those people 
thousands of people were admitted and refugees, many of whom are Africans, are, have been waiting in some cases for years. They would be coming legally. They've been vetted. There are organizations to assist them in, in settling. But nobody, um, uh, Trump didn't like the program and Biden doesn't care about it. So um, those are some, just some of the political issues that are involved when discussing um, the, uh, the issues uh, surrounding immigration in this country. Yeah, definitely. And I appreciate how you mentioned in your piece and as you just got done discussing, Margaret, about the issue with these, you know, so-called sanctuary cities themselves and just what that means. I mean, it's a phrase that can give you a kind of warm and fuzzy feeling because it makes you think, oh, well, immigrants can come here and be, you know, protected from, you know, the the, the violence and racism that colors so much of their experience uh, elsewhere in the country. But like you say, it's kind of a flimsy uh, sort of definition to begin with. And I mean, we, we talk to organizers in D.C. here on the show, immigration organizers, who for a while were the only ones that were offering any support in Washington, D.C. to the immigrants that were being bussed up here. Now, here recently, uh, the so-called progressive mayor, Muriel Bowser, um, has made some resources available. But according to some of those same organizers, I mean, it's about five months too late. And also the issue with uh, within New York um, is, uh, you know, the, the sort of shelter system itself that you were discussing, which is, uh, you know, it's already overburdened. And uh, with some of the, the reporting uh, that we were discussing, you know, in some places they may not have even even had uh, Spanish language translation services, which blows my mind because we're talking about New York City. You know what I mean? And so I feel like it uh, I feel like there's a deeper commentary there around uh, the Democrats, of course, D.C. And, and, and New York City, both the Democratic strongholds. But I think that there's a deeper commentary there about how the Democrats uh, deal with immigration and how they sort of position and portray themselves as being uh, the progressive entity as it pertains to that. But uh, in reality, when we look at the actual conditions of immigrants, I think it tells quite another story. And I mean, just the Biden administration alone, I think you mentioned this when we were talking about the issue of uh, Haitian immigrants, you know, I mean, has just had, I mean, they've just been waylaid by this particular administration. And so I feel like I'm rumbling now, but what I'm saying in a nutshell, uh, Margaret, is that uh, I feel like the whole issue of the sanctuary cities that we're seeing here kind of exposes the reality of uh, the Democrats' orientation towards the whole issue. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's you know, it's one of uh, those issues where Republicans are honest and upfront about their hostility uh, towards people coming from other countries. And Democrats talk out of both sides of their mouths and claim to be the friendlier uh, party. But every president has helped build a border wall, all of them. They've all um, uh, built some portions of the border wall. Now, it's something Trump campaigned on. Um, and that was important to him. But Biden is uh, continuing building the border wall. Um, it's Bill Clinton who enacted some of the worst um, legislation regarding uh, immigration in one of his uh, 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 double dirty dealings with Newt Gingrich. So, for example, if you're not a citizen, if you're convicted of a felony, you are deportable. It doesn't matter if uh, 
you know, if you jump a turnstile here in New York and, and try to sneak on the subway without paying, that's a felony. Uh, writing a bad check is a felony. So it's not necessarily, um, you know, a violent crime. And people have been deported who had been here for years, who had families here, who had jobs here. Uh, having a green card doesn't really um, um, protect you. And I've in private conversations with people, I've told them, if you want to live here, I would say become a citizen. Uh, having a green card is, uh, is not protection. But um, so there are all kinds of ways in which both political parties are hostile to immigrants. Now, it's a funny thing. It was a Republican. It was Ronald Reagan who 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago now, I guess, um, who enacted uh, amnesty for undocumented people. And in one fell swoop, thousands of, uh, maybe it was even more than a million people who were undocumented uh, were legalized. And um, there was supposed to be enforcement and, you know, you would, uh, employers would pay a penalty if they hired somebody who was undocumented. But as I already said, that doesn't uh, really mean much. But since that, and that was for labor, that was for big business. There are businesses that um, are run um, uh, almost entirely, uh, are, are, are staffed by people who are um, uh, immigrants of various categories, but many people who are undocumented. And I, but I wanted to raise something else about immigration. We can have or should have an uh, intelligent evidence-based discussion about immigration. Do immigrants take jobs? Uh, I know many people, many black people, um, uh, who are, we always, of course, suffer from more unemployment and underemployment. And there are people who get here from some other country and they get jobs right away. Uh, So that's an issue to be discussed, but it's not something to be discussed um, uh, in conjunction with uh, uh, Ron DeSantis's latest uh, latest stunt, so it's a complicated issue. Um, uh, Democrats will, so Obama will have uh, the DACA program for uh, people who were brought here as minor children, but only if you're a certain age and only if you came in a certain year. So it doesn't cover everybody, and uh, Republicans hate it and they fight against it. Uh, there's no comprehensive uh, policy about immigration, and the immigration policy um, rules in general can be very, very hostile to black people. If you make one mistake, you can be deported, um, or you can can never legalize your situation regardless of how you uh, came here. I know people struggling with that who came here as minors, but they don't fit into the DACA categories, and they're restricted in what they can and cannot do. So uh, it is complicated. It is something that needs to be addressed, but it needs to be addressed uh, as a serious issue. But there are no serious issues. And by that, I mean the duopoly more often than not agree rather than disagree and um, uh, work together uh, against resolving issues that are uh, important and that in Uh, affect the lives of people in this country. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open to 0252-11320. That's two. 02521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Margaret Kimberly. And we have a caller on the line here, Wesley. Tell us what's on your mind. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say wonderful show today as always. But uh, I wanted to touch on what Jackie said in the monologue. Um, you know, they're talking about protests in Russia, crackdowns on freedom, and so forth and so on. You know, the Western media talks about this. But how loud are they amplifying, for example, in Ukraine, how they banned over 11 pro-Russian parties? They're doing the same things that Putin does. But one is friendly to the imperialist uh, the imperialist model that the U.S. wants. One is not. Uh, just this week, in the areas that Russian troops pulled back from, we've seen teachers be threatened with up to 15-year sentences. Uh, that are from Russia that came to Ukraine to fill in the teaching, you know, the lack of teachers in the area. They're being threatened with up to 15-year sentences in prison for crimes against the state. Um, You know, I mean, even in the United States here, we saw with the Black Lives Matter, you know, uprising in 2020, the rebellion against racism, we saw up to 14,000, I want to say, people arrested in the United States. You know, but you didn't see CNN broadcasting it as authoritarian U.S. government cracks down on peaceful protesters. And I mean, even I mean, one example, another example is with the whole Brittany Griner thing. I do feel bad for her. I think marijuana should be legal. I think it's dumb that it's not. But we have people that have been sitting in prison for decades in the United States for the same crimes. Yet where is CNN doing these, you know? whole news stories about people that are prisoners of, you know, the U.S. federal system and even some state systems because they they had marijuana, you know? You know like, like Jackie said, I'm no fan of Putin. I'm not a right-winger. I'm none of that. But at the same time, you know, you can't call out one side without calling out the other. And uh, I think that's about all I have to say. Once again, thank you for taking my call and wonderful show. Thank you, Wesley. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, next, we have Erica. Tell us what's on your mind. Hi. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to ask Margaret and even the host their thoughts on Biden being questioned recently on the migrant surge and his comments about it not being rational to send them back and pointing specifically to Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua and what that might mean uh, coupled with um, the press secretary's comments. Uh, yesterday, uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre, um, uh, specifically naming these countries communists. Um, yeah, so that's, that's all. And thank you for taking my question. No compromise, no retreat. All right. Well, thank you so much, Erica, one of our daily listeners in the by any means necessary chat. Um, yeah, Margaret Kimberly, I'll go to you a good bit there. I mean, uh, uh, the uh, note that she was uh, sort of mentioning there from the the, the, the U.S. press secretary, Corinne uh, Jean-Pierre, excuse me, the White House press secretary is about supposedly communism uh, driving migrant flows, which it's certainly a take, but a, a good bit there between the two callers. Uh, feel free to respond to any of it. <laughs> oh, 
okay, I will. You know, Miss Miss Jean Pierre is like is she is she not the worst propagandist of all? She's bad, man. She is not good at this. It's crazy. Oh, no, she isn't. It's um it's uh sometimes I actually feel badly for her. I mean, she's just she's not cut out for this job. But anyway, um uh but but no, of course, you know, and it's a tough job because you have to defend BS. Um, and I think that's especially true for this uh, administration. But the the fact of the matter is, and I believe she made the comment uh, in regard to a question from the press about the United States giving preference to people because the United States is hostile to their government. And um, so you see these stories about increased uh, um, uh, asylum requests, immigration, uh, people showing up at the border from Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, because the U.S. has, in effect, told them, come on in. Uh, I don't know if they think about these things. I don't know if they care. I don't know if they're just trying to make a point against these governments, but they, it's just one more way in which they don't think these things through. I mean, the Cubans have always had a, some a favorite status since the U.S. has had this 60-year-long uh, uh, a war by by uh, other names uh, against that country, but to say it's because of communism, it's like you know. Let me tell you what sanctions are. Sanctions. It's as if um, I broke into your house, one of your homes, and trashed it, and then said, "Oh my God, that house is a mess." That's what the U.S. does to these countries that it sanctions. Uh, but of course, the press secretary even uh, within these limits, did not know how to finesse this question. And she just said it's because there's communism. People from all over the world want to come here, from uh, socialist countries, mostly because they're targeted and their lives are made um, miserable, uh, from capitalist countries. So why do people come here from Guatemala or Mexico or Honduras? They are not socialist countries. Uh, Why do people come here from Haiti? where there is this um, hyper-capitalism and all of it's helped by the U.S. helping the oligarchs there. So it was, of course, a very um, a very stupid response, but that's, that's generally what we get from uh, poor Miss Jean-Pierre, who's um, in, uh, in over her head. And um, uh, the first guest was uh, talking about, ah, I can't remember what his question was about uh, Ukraine. There's so much to say. Um, uh, uh, well, well, he was basically, I think, pointing out some of the hypocrisy in the coverage about how, for instance, um, it isn't discussed about, you know, how the Zelensky government banned all, you know, I think it was 11 opposition parties. Um, the Communist Party has been banned there for a while and, you know, uh, so on and so forth, that that sort of thing. Yeah, well, you know, um, you know, before this February, there were very frequent reports in the news about Ukraine being the most corrupt country in Europe, being the poorest country in Europe. And of course, if you're the most corrupt country, you'll be the poorest country. Uh, there were stories about uh, the uh, neo-Nazi groups there and how they're given protection by the government. But all those stories that were factual suddenly disappeared uh, this past February. And um, these are things we can't forget. Ukraine, um, the uh, Zelensky, who they, you know, they're still stuffing him down our throat, right? Uh, recently, virtually opened the stock exchange, rang the bell, and said, Ukraine's open for business. Well, of course it is. And one of the things he recently did was deprive Ukrainian 
workers of their collective bargaining rights. So unions in, are, in effect, illegal in Ukraine. And yes, they banned many political parties. So to the, you know, in short, it's fascist. It's a fascist government. And that's where our tax dollars are going. And some of the people being admitted here, and Ukrainians talk about going to the border, they fly to Mexico, rent a car, drive to Texas, and they get in because they're Ukrainian. And they have, in fact, become uh, the latest European settler group in um, in the United States. So uh, we have to have these honest conversations about uh, Ukraine, about the U.S. involvement that started all this in 2014 when the U.S. undermined uh, the elected president of Ukraine and put the far right into power. Jackie Lukman, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I, I appreciate um, uh, Wesley, you know, pointing out the thing about the teachers in Ukraine and, you know, just all of the ways that and that was the point I was making that the hypocrisy of the U.S. media, what you call, Sean, all the time, uh, the scribes of the State Department. That is precisely what they are. It doesn't matter to any of these anchors on any of these shows, I don't care which show it is on CNN or MSNBC or any of these networks, it does not matter to them that they are not only lying about a lot of what they are saying, reporting about Ukraine, it also doesn't matter what actually is going on in Ukraine. It doesn't matter to them that Ukraine really is a fascist uh, regime that they are helping to prop up through their uh, uh, disseminating, propagating this idea that, you know, oh, th- now Russia's on the ropes because the Russophobia has been drummed up so heavily in this country since 2016. I mean, their paychecks literally depend upon them continuing this lie, uh, uh, Margaret. And I mean, I- I'm wondering how you are seeing the the end result of the the U.S. corporate media when what I think is going to be the inevitable backlash uh, uh, when Russia doesn't collapse, when when they don't lose this conflict. How do you think they're going to be able to spin Russia not losing and then, you know, Ukraine just being all out fascist for everyone to see, which I think will will be exposed pretty soon, too? Well, they just, they're doing everything they can to make sure you don't see these things. I mean, the idea, Russia has a bigger military, much bigger military than Ukraine does. You, Russia has been, they haven't won every battle, uh, but I think if we can say in general, Russia is winning. They have about uh, 20% of Ukrainian territory. Uh, Ukraine had a good week last week. The uh, Russians had withdrawn from a region, and of course they went in. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, Ukraine is winning. And the reason they had this offensive was to make the case to keep getting money and equipment from the U.S. and EU and uh, uh, the U.K. But Russia is winning. Russia's right next door with a large industrial capacity, which is one of the things that's kept it from being destroyed. And, you know, it's a, I've said this very often about the Biden administration and some of the EU leaders and UK leaders. These are the dumbest people, the most incompetent people I have ever seen. It's like a sick joke that they're all in power at the same uh, time. They really believed their own hype about Russia only having oil. And all you had to do was sanction Russian gas and oil and Russia was going to fall apart. Well, guess what? 
the value of uh, the euro has gone down, but the value of the ruble has gone up. Uh, Russia has now divorced itself from having any relations with Europe. They're selling their oil to India, selling their oil to China. They all met last week, and our uh, corporate media just tell you it's the it's authoritarian meeting. No, it's the um, the axis shifting, the economic axis shifting, the diplomatic axis shifting. Um, and uh, that is why they're so anxious. They always talk about disinformation. They were even going to have some disinformation agency to keep lying to us, to keep us from uh, uh, seeing the facts on the ground in Ukraine. And you can debate whether Russia should have gone in or not. You can debate any number of things about Vladimir Putin, but you cannot debate that Ukraine blew up in their faces. The Biden administration was instigating Ukraine to try to take back the Donbass and daring Russia to do something, and they would use it as an excuse to sanction Russia. But um, uh, Vladimir Putin called their bluff. Thousands of people are dead. Uh, the British government, the recent uh, 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 former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, kept flying to see Zelensky to tell him not to talk to Russia which means he's got blood on his hands. And uh, so all of the so-called reporting has been just awful. The worst thing you can do if you want to know anything about Ukraine is to read or listen to U.S. corporate media. You can read Black Agenda Report. You can read uh, other media that are called alternative, although I don't like that term. But it's terrible that you have to, on your own, look for sources of information, but you do. Uh, you're very, very much misinformed if you read the New York Times about the situation in Ukraine. Sometimes uh, media dedicated to finance will give better information because they've got to talk about the money. But um, uh, yes, Russia has been winning from the beginning. The effort to sanction Russia has harmed the entire world. Uh, more than it's harmed. I mean, these people are so stupid, they don't know how capitalism works. We all know about supply and demand, right? So if you sanction Russia gas and oil, um, then the price will go up. Hello? So there's less of a demand, you know? So um, uh, they have harmed the entire world. There is um, an economic war of uh, uh, attrition that's harmed the U.S., harmed European nations terribly. Uh, there's another part of this story. The U.S. wants to force European countries to buy fracked gas from the U.S., which is worse for the environment, which is more expensive. But um, it's a longer story. But uh, it, it, um, we really do have to pay close attention to what's happening uh, in Ukraine. And I would urge your listeners also to look for themselves. You can find Vladimir Putin's speeches or um, uh, uh, press conferences. So when they say he said he was going to use nuclear weapons, he did not. And uh, you can uh, look that up yourself. You can see transcripts uh, of those things. But it remains a very, very serious situation and one that they're devoted to hiding uh, the, the real story, hiding it from us. So they can get away with giving, I think we're now up to $60 billion for Ukraine and to continue that cash cow flowing. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I'm just curious, um, Margaret, why you don't care for the term uh, alternative media? I mean, do you think it'd just be called media or what's your thought on that? I'm just wondering. 
Well, I feel like it marginalizes what we do. Uh, we're not corporate media, so we shouldn't be called corporate media, but just the word media. Or you could even say if it's left media, if that's the orientation, you can uh, say that. But I, I, uh, you know, I think everybody knows what you mean when the word, uh, when that term is used. But I um, don't uh, like to think of what we do as. I mean, it is an alternative to what the New York Times will tell you. But um, there is a uh, I, I feel like there's a um, it, it implies uh, something uh, that is different and uh, not as good. Well, there's a New York Times and NPR, but there's an alternative. No, there's just media. That's uh, my point. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And I, and I actually wanted to swing back around to the issue of uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre, right, the, 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 the White House press secretary. Um, uh, you know, uh, Ms. Jean-Pierre, who, to my understanding, was born in Martinique to Haitian parents. So, you know, there's an extra layer there. I think we talk about uh, immigration. But whenever I see her, right, and, and I just, I watch her talk, I watch how she answers questions. And every time I see her, I feel like I'm looking at someone who is not qualified to do this job. And, and to your point, the, the White House press secretary does have a very particular duty really only one and it's just what you said to sort of launder and regurgitate and to present as legitimate you know the misrepresentations uh, skewed narratives and outright lies of u.s imperialism and most of them yeah i tend to be pretty good at it i feel like sarah huckabee sanders might be the, the best that uh there's been in some time if you just talk about sheer commitment but the fact that Corinne Jean-Pierre is even in this position, I think, speaks to a kind of opportunism uh, of the Joe Biden administration. So I feel like she's White House press secretary for the same reason that Kamala Harris is the vice president and uh, that, you know, Lloyd Austin is the head of the, the Pentagon and Linda Thomas Greenfeld is the ambassador uh, to the U.N. and that uh, the Biden administration has uh, a cabinet that is diverse in identity, but of course has a oneness of ideology in terms of their fealty to uh, imperialism. And, you know, we've pointed that out a number of times here on the show, but I, I just feel like Corinne Jean-Pierre is just sort of the most glaring example of that. I, it just really does feel, unfortunately, that she was only picked for this because she was a, a young black woman and not because of any particular skill that she has because ah, she just doesn't seem to have it as it pertains to this particular position. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I don't want to sound like a hater. Then again, I think that is precisely what I want to sound like, but I feel like, accurate. yeah, <laughs> hating on, you know, the ruling class of this imperialist state, I think is, is, is different, but, but I'm sorry, Mark, go ahead. Uh, sure. It's, I, I agree with you 100%. It's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, a bit of an insult to, I'm sure there are competent black people who, uh, could uh, get these uh, jobs of uh, uh, working for empire and being propagandists. It's uh, it's all dirty work, all of them. From you know Anthony Blinken and uh, uh, all of them, all of them are. None of these people are good. They're all upheld as being smart people and this and that, and uh, they aren't. They uh, it's from Biden on down. But um, uh, it is uh, funny to me that this very prominent role is given to a black person who's just not competent. She's not suited for this job. And it's glaring. You can see it. And it is a tough job. It does require 
a specific set of skills, but she does not have them. And uh, so she, uh, for, so for example, when uh, uh, I, I, a couple of weeks ago, there have been protests in Europe about um, these governments um, uh, uh, giving into the United States. And there are people in uh, uh, France and Chechia who said, open the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, the pipeline deal between Angela Merkel and Victor, uh, and, uh, Victor Putin, Vladimir Putin. And Jean-Pierre kept saying Nordstrom instead of Nord Stream. And people were making fun of her, like, are you talking about the store or are you talking about the pipeline? I mean, that's just, I mean, it's, and it's phonetic too. It's like Nord Stream. It's just the way it's spelled. But um, uh, she's, she's doing well. She'll do well in life. She's making good money, I'm sure. She will be like her predecessors, and she'll be a professional flack for the rest of her life. Um, uh, she, well, she probably won't have the opportunities that the white people have, but she'll, she'll do okay in life. But she is um, she's not good at her job. It's very obvious, and we should say that. And even if she were better at her job, we should be honest about what that person does. The um, White House press secretary is a professional liar. Uh, their job is to um, promote their administration, regardless of what they do, whether it's right, whether it's wrong. And as time goes by, it's a lot more wrong than there is uh, right. So there's nothing wrong with hating on certain individuals, and I put her on that list. <laughs> Definitely. Well, we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here Jackie Lukeman is here. Margaret Kimberly is here as we continue. And uh, Margaret, I wanted to also talk some about um, the recent United Nations uh, General Assembly meeting where we heard a number of things. We heard a few countries uh, condemning uh, the U.S. Uh, blockade on Cuba and things like that. Quite naturally, when uh, Joe Biden uh, got his chance to speak, he spoke a lot about Russia, Ukraine, I believe touched on China as well, and said uh, in part, quote, talking about the war in Ukraine, this war is about extinguishing Ukraine's right to exist as a state, plain and simple, and Ukraine's right to exist as a people. Whoever you are, wherever you live, whatever you believe, that should make your blood run cold. He added, the world should see these outrageous acts for what they are. Putin claims he had to act because Russia was threatened, but no one threatened Russia. And so, you know, you know, he went on to say that, uh, you know, uh, Russia shamelessly uh, violating the U.N. charter and things like that. Now, here again, I think regardless of how one analyzes uh, the war in Ukraine and Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, to say that 
no one threatened Russia to to continue to push this narrative of the quote unquote unprovoked war in Ukraine is a lie. It's it's false. And one could only believe it if you completely ignore everything that happened before February 24th, 2022. And And when we talk about the threats to Russia, I mean, that far predates Vladimir Putin and the current Russian Federation as a country. And so we see U.S. imperialism going before the world and just straight up lying about what's happening um, in this whole conflict. But you see, they're able to do that, obviously, because of the position and, and the power of U.S. imperialism, which, at least in my opinion, though it may be in a, a state of some decline, still uh, uh, has a vice-like grip on uh, uh, global politics, I think, in a number of ways uh, through uh, different means, militarily, economically and so on. And, you know, so I'm just sort of wondering what you make of Biden's comments here uh, at the United Nations. I mean, I mean, obviously, it's not surprising that, uh, you know, he would say these sorts of things, but particularly with uh, the the recent uh, developments within the war in Ukraine and the fact that this war doesn't seem like it's going anywhere anytime soon, you know, seeing Washington continue to double down on these like outright lies, I think is an indication of what we can expect uh, here in the coming period, Margaret. Yes. You know, when they, when they go on and on about something being unprovoked, you know, in fact, that it was provoked and um, uh, Russia had been asking for a security guarantee in writing. They had been asking for months. Uh, the U.S. dragged its feet there. You know, the, the uh, Minsk uh, Accords were uh, Germany and France were supposed to guarantee um, these accords, which would give the Donbass regions uh, autonomy um, and provide, you know, language rights protection, other things. And Ukraine signed them. The U.N. Security Council voted unanimously. Of course, that means the U.S., um, uh, to uh, to approve them, but uh, the U.S. didn't want to do it, so it was the third president not to do anything about the Minsk Accords. Germany and France are complicit. And uh, so everything Russia asked for that was very reasonable, they did not get, because the goal is not an honest one, because U.S. hands are not clean, because the goal is, as Putin said the other night, uh, there's an existential threat to Russia. They want to break up Russia. They say so. They say it all the time. So um, so we have this situation. And, and by the way, and I want to say, it's not necessary to like everything about the targeted nation. Um, if, if you're an anti-imperialist, you have to condemn the imperialism. And uh, the U.S. is the imperial power here, not Russia. The U.S. has the world's reserve currency, uh, the biggest military in the world, uh, 800 military bases, all of those things mean that the U.S. is the imperial power. And um, uh, U.S. actions around the world need to be opposed, need to be condemned. And so you don't have to like Vladimir Putin. You don't have to um, uh, agree with his uh, decision to have, uh, they call it a special military operation. You don't have to agree with those things in order to point out what the U.S. is doing and how the U.S. exacerbated and continues this conflict. And the rest of the world be damned. The American people be damned. Um, They seem to have dropped this Putin's price hike. 
uh, that was their explanation for everything, right? Now they talk about mega all the time. So uh, Biden talks about mega more than uh, Donald Trump ever did. But but at any rate, so there's a lot of war propaganda. And it's, uh, as we said before, it's difficult to get the facts. You really have to be committed to getting information. But even as I said to a friend of mine, you don't always have to know the details. If you assume that the U.S. is lying, you will nine times out of 10, you will be correct. And um, that's certainly true in Ukraine. Um, and it doesn't matter what Biden says. The, the world has changed. The polls, the axis of power is shifting to the east. And uh, Biden can give some dumb speech at the U.N. if he wants to. But that does not change the fact that China is the uh, by some people say it's already uh, the um, Chinese economy is bigger than the U.S. That is not going to change. Russia and China are linked. And you see what they do. They'll say, uh, oh, China doesn't like what Russia is doing every time. Vladimir Putin, though, every major move it comes right after he meets with Xi Jinping. They are close. They are like this. And, of course, I'm holding my two fingers up close together. So um, that's what people need to know. And it's really criminal that the political class in this country, that the corporate media are all dedicated to keeping people in the dark. And even if you want to be well-informed, it's very it's very difficult to do because there's so many forces arrayed against you uh, that are dedicated to um, uh, giving us the uh, the uh, the state version of events. Yeah, and you know, you raise something that definitely bothers me uh, about the left. Although certainly the left in the U.S. aren't the only people that do this, but it's just like this zero sum way of thinking about politics or analysis, if I'm using that correctly. And what it means is, is that if you are defending a country against U.S. imperialism, whether it's uh, a capitalist country like Russia, a socialist country like Cuba, uh, a, you know, a, a religious country like Iran, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. If you do that, then you're perceived as having this uncritical, full-throated, uh, uh, you know, syncophantic kind of support for the government of that country and specifically its leader. Well, this is a it's a completely immature, undeveloped and frankly dilettantish way of thinking about politics. This is not it's not a basketball game. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a lot of different layers and levels and nuance and context to a lot of these issues with this war in Ukraine uh, certainly being just one. But because of the climate in the U.S., nuance is treated as uh, a quote unquote whataboutism. Or a defense of something bad, you know, a defense of so-called authoritarianism or genocide denial or whatever and what have you. Or you take the last name of whoever the leader is and put ist on the end and you're that. So you're an Assadist, you're a Putinist and so on and, and what have you. You know what I'm saying? And so that trickles down even to people ostensibly on the left because they're susceptible uh, to this. Uh, propaganda as anyone. We have to remember that, you know, it, it definitely helps to have these politics as a filter, but 
uh, people can still be impacted by these narratives. You know what I mean? And so I just feel like, particularly in this moment, the state of, with the state of geopolitics being what they are, it's important that we have a level of clarity and, and ideological soundness when we approach these things, because that is what will equip us with the tools necessary to really navigate these uh, difficult questions and to raise um, the issue for what it is. And that's one of U.S. imperialism and all these sorts of things. You know what I mean? I just feel like, you know, uh, the time has long since passed for us to really grapple with these things in a serious way and not, you know, wrap ourselves in left sounding language while basically having the same line as the U.S. State Department. You know what I mean? Yeah, it really um, requires a level of education, political education, discernment, political uh, maturity. But this, you know, it's, it, I, I think most people are impacted by liberalism, which puts the personal before the political. So you turn a, a foreign leader into a demon, and it's all about do you like Putin or do you not like Putin? Or if you dislike Putin, is it for the correct reason? Uh, is it because you believe what the New York Times says about him, or do you, or is it because he's a neoliberal, he's a, a right winger, uh, which he which he happens to be, even as he opposes the U.S. Um, so uh, you you really do need that level of political education and knowledge in order not to fall into those traps. But uh, the most important thing for us to do is to oppose the hegemon, and that is the United States. Um, and the hegemon doesn't have any friends. It only has enemies and vassals. And that's why Germany, for uh, to name just one country, is going to be very cold this winter because they're a vassal of the U.S. The worst thing you can be, I, I think, is a, a U.S. friend because it won't turn out well. Jackie Lugman, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, we've been saying this uh, ever since uh, February of this year that that, you know, this uh, gambit by the U.S. and its, uh, you know, international armed gang of thugs, NATO and their allies, the EU, it's not going to turn out the way they continually uh, insist that it it is going to because it has never gone the way they uh, say that it's gone. And our job is to just continue to provide the truth and the political education we have provided. Because at some point, Sean, there is going to come a crisis of conscience of many people in this country when they realize, oh my, we've all been lied to all this time. What do we do? Who do we turn to? And we need to be ready. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I just think it's good to have a reminder for people about what's important. What's important is organizing a mass movement, a mass working class movement against the ravages of imperialism and the capitalist system that undergirds imperialism. What's not important? What's not important is, you know, a bunch of Twitch streamers and YouTubers and talking heads and online personalities flapping their gums about a bunch of nonsense that doesn't move the needle or contribute to any forward movement on these issues and just building their own profile. And particularly on social media, I know it's very easy to get uh, caught up and emotionally invested in all this mess and all this drama. It just doesn't move anything. Like There's just no good reason for us to even care about all this stupid stuff that we constantly see every day on these social media platforms that's jammed in our face. My friends, 
we have to understand that at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is the organizing. Everything else is just noise. And so we have to, I think, be uh, chiefly and squarely concerned with how to organize amongst and alongside our class and not get distracted by nonsense. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Margaret Kimberly, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with all new episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.